Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Lucy Bonino. I'm super straight, by the way. Just like fucking a lot of dudes, like very, 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 very straight. Um. <laughs> now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the modern jazz quartet behind me now and we are calling this week's episode live from richmond we were just in richmond virginia a couple weeks ago I'll tell you, there are few things that I love so much as a really wonderful audience, an audience that is just so generous and into it and supportive, and that's what we had that night in Richmond. It was a magical night. There's a fourth story from that night that we're going to put on next week's episode, but before we jump in, I just wanted to say I've, I've been having a ton of fun with these Ask Me Anythings that we've been doing. If you email kevin at riskdashshow.com and then just put in the subject line of your email, AMA, I will address your question in these Patreon check-ins I've been doing. I'm going to do another one today. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from the remarkable Rose Grant unforgettable story that she shared if you're squeamish about bodily fluids medical emergency sorts of stuff that one might be rough on you but before that we're going to hear a story from lucy bonino who you can find on instagram at lucy bonino this was an interesting case in that everyone on this episode today was telling a story for the very first time. These were all storytelling first-timers, and it goes to show that you could probably do this with us, too, if you pitch us sometime at wristdashshow.com slash submissions. (laughs) Anyway, let's get to that first story. This is Lucy Bonino with a story we call Third Time's a Charm? Hi, everybody. Okay, so when I was 19 years old, I used to intern in Mexico City at this place that my parents used to work at, all right? So I'm leaving work with a friend of mine, and we're going to go get some drinks at this place called King's Pub, which everyone in Mexico calls King's Pub, to see some live music. And this is a place, it's literally like a British quote-unquote pub, right? Um, So they play a lot of English music, right? So we're like, cool. So we go, and there's like all these bands, and they all kind of sound alike, except for this one band that has this chick lead singer, and right off the bat, 
I'm super straight, by the way. Just like fucking a lot of dudes, like very, 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 very straight. Um, <laughs> so I see this chick, and she is stunning. Uh, she might be like an inch taller than me. Well, no, because she was wearing heels, so she was probably like a lot taller than me. She's wearing like leggings. She's got like hair that's like probably like a little bit past her shoulders. Pink highlights, which I remember because every time I've seen pink highlights since and before, I was like, wow, these look atrocious. But they look really good on her. So she's singing, and she's singing Strokes covers and Cake covers. And I noticed this because I love both of those bands very, 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 very much. So she's singing, and I'm literally just like facing her, and every other kind of like verse and everything is kind of eyeing me. And I am obviously staring at her, so I'm like very into it. My friend Chris, who's with me, notices this immediately. All of a sudden, this guy comes into the bar, just this rando selling roses, because it's Mexico, you know, why the fuck not, right? So he's selling roses, and my friend Chris is like, all right, I'm going to buy her a rose, and I'm going to buy her a drink, because she's, like, mad cute. And I was like, yeah, flirt with her, like, go get her, guy. So I go, and I pee, and I think that that's what has happened. But when I come back from the bathroom, I realize that she is publicly thanking me from the stage, being like, gracias, Lucy, por la rosa y por el whisky. And I was like, great. And at that point, I can feel everybody's eyes just on me. I want to melt directly into the earth. Because again, I'm straight. (laughs) So I am like, I need to get the fuck out of here. So I find my cigarettes, and I go outside, and I just start smoking. And I guess it was like right as her set was ending, because she came outside and immediately found me, and uh, starts talking to me, and we're kind of talking a little bit, and she's like, oh, where are you from? Because like my accent sounds completely not Mexican. My accent is Argentinian, because I'm Argentinian. So we're talking a little bit about that, and she's getting kind of closer to me, and all of a sudden, I just remember she put her hand on my lower back to whisper something, and immediately I just go like... I like stand up straight and like all the hair on the back of my neck is like standing up completely and I'm like, fuck. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) I'm like, oh God, okay, this girl is like already really close to me. Like, what is she going to try to do? Is she going to try to kiss me? Like, fuck. Ah!" Um, So (laughs) she like leans over and whispers in my ear, hey, I'm having a really good time talking to you. Do you want to maybe go like grab another drink at another bar? And I'm like, nope. No, 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 no. I have to work tomorrow. Bye. So I left. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So fast forward a year. I am back in Mexico City, still working at that same internship. And I am at a nightclub this time with a bunch of my uh, coworkers slash, like, friends. This place is packed, by the way. And I see this bar, like at the other end of this nightclub that has, like, no people in it because it's this place that has, like, a soundstage. So I, like, go, and I order a drink, and all of a sudden I hear the same Frank Sinatra cake cover that I heard the year before. So I curl my head around, and before I can even have another thought, I, like, see her, and I make a beeline directly toward her because it's the same chick from the year before, and I'm like, yes! So I'm literally standing there staring at her and I realize she was probably like looking at me the year before because like whenever you see like live music literally anywhere, like you're never ever just giving your undivided attention to the music. You're like 
talking amongst yourselves or like with your friends or like it's kind of like background music like not me like I'm just like straight up like looking at this chick at this place so she's kind of eyeing me again same thing as the year before Uh, her set ends and she comes over and talks to me and like I'm asking her like oh like you know when did you start playing like how often have you played here and she's like oh I usually play like smaller bars and like different like clubs and stuff but this is my first time playing here and I was like dope so uh, you know, we talk a little bit and then she's like, do you want to dance? And I was like, yeah, sure. You know, just two girls, two girls dancing, nothing weird with that. You know, uh, I came here with a bunch of my girlfriends, you know, we were probably going to dance like nothing to see here, folks. (laughs) So still painfully straight, by the way, like super fucking straight. We're dancing and she's getting closer to me. I'm like super, super, super into it, but I'm like trying not to read into anything. So we're dancing, and all of a sudden, she kisses me. And then, my knees are like shaking, and I'm getting real hot, and I'm like realizing that maybe I don't like men as much as I thought I did. (laughs) But before I can have those real thoughts, the rational part of my brain takes over and is like, your coworkers are literally all around you. What the fuck are you doing? Like, you need to zip it now, right? So I pull away and I just spit out the words, which literally translates to, what do you think about dyke? I'm not a dyke, you're a dyke. Yep. And just the look of confusion and a little bit of anger, embarrassment, like maybe she misread the situation, which I still feel horrible at, and hurt, just like very hurt, and so I just walk off, uh, and I go find my friends, and I feel like a piece of shit, and then we go to another bar, and that's that. So fast forward one more year, (laughs) I am at a speakeasy with my brother, we're seeing live jazz, bunch of band goes up we're there for like a few hours and then guess who decides to show up with her band (laughs) this girl (laughs) again (laughs) and when she comes on the stage my jaw is just like literally on the floor I'm like what are the fucking odds that this happens again by the way the second year to the first year she did not recognize me and then the second year to the third year I have cut my hair from like down like past my boobs to like a pixie cut so I see her and I recognize her immediately and my brother gets a text from his friends and he's like, I think we're going to go to a nightclub and I was like, no, I have to see this through right now. So I make up some excuse as to why to stay. I'm like, oh, I love jazz. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so the other thing to note is, yeah, my brother's like a monster when he's with his friends and then the other thing is, it's probably 11 o'clock at this point. We had been drinking since like six. So... Not at the same place, but just, we'd been drinking for a very long time. So, yeah, this lady, Laura, she takes the stage, and she is singing her same, like, songs that I've heard her sing, like, different American songs. She sings with a very thick Mexican accent, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, so she finishes up. I'm, again, facing her, staring at her, and this time I buy her a drink of my own volition, double whiskey, And she comes off the stage, she's like kind of talking to me, and we introduce ourselves again. She has no idea who I am, thank God. We're outside smoking a cigarette, and she's talking about how she's like an UNAM student, and I'm like, oh, cool, like, she's like a little older. I'm like, oh, sweet. And then 
I don't know, she's like pretty close to me, so I just like lean in and I kiss her. My mouth starts to get super, 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 super sweaty. (laughs) So exactly what you think is going to happen happens, and I start violently and uncontrollably projectile vomiting all over myself, all over her, (laughs) and all over this cab that's like right next to us. And I remember she was wearing this like kind of long beige coat because my my vomit was the same color as that coat. (laughs) So yeah, I just remember looking up and her eyes are like crazy wide, like what? What is happening? And then I had a flight or fight response and my option was flight. I was like, leave. (laughs) So I ran off. (laughs) And then the next morning, I woke up. I was like, I fucked it up again. (laughs) And I was actually very sad uh, because I was like, no. But yeah, I don't know. I thought we were going to get married and like have cats and that was going to be the end of the story, but it wasn't. Um, But yeah, uh, so I came out of the closet like three months later and funny story, I've actually, I've been on like two dates with this one girl and she's currently here. (laughs) That's it. My patient, Nancy Bowden, lay in her hospital bed, and she was writhing around and confused, moaning. She was 80 years old, and she was this tiny person in this huge hospital bed. And her husband, Bodie, who was this larger-than-life man, was leaning over her hospital bed, just combing her hair in just the right way to braid her gray hair into pigtails at the side of her head and shushing into her ear like she was an infant. And in many ways, she was like an infant. She 
couldn't speak, she couldn't walk, she couldn't feed herself. I'm not sure she could even think, because at that point, she couldn't meaningfully interact with anyone, even her own husband, because of really advanced dementia and many strokes. But despite this, Bodhi, her husband, came to visit her every day, and he, he always wore the same thick flannel and, and worn jeans every day, and he, he brought her her favorite foods to try to coax her into eating, and he would talk to her like she was going to talk back. And he would say, you know, you're going to dance out of this hospital any day with me, aren't you, baby? And then he would look at me and say, see, see, she, she nodded, she nodded, she said yes. She hadn't nodded. She didn't say yes because she couldn't respond to anything anybody spoke to her. She really only seemed to respond to pain. And um, as the senior resident taking care of Mrs. Bowden, I went in that night to update Bodhi about her condition. And I told him, Mrs. Bowden has another pneumonia because at this point she couldn't even swallow her own saliva. It was aspirating into her lungs. And he stood up and said, no, no, that's not why she has pneumonia. She has pneumonia because you left the window open. And I said, I'm sorry, sir, the windows here don't even open. And he said, no, no, you you think because I'm black that I don't get it. But I can see this. I can see what's going on here. All you white doctors are just a bunch of racists. And I stood perfectly still. My heart was racing and my face flushed this embarrassing red and my ears were hot and I wanted to step back from him. He was this tall man standing in front of me, like a foot taller than me, but I was scared to even move. What I didn't tell Bodhi was that my patients talk to me about race all the time. I take care of a couple in my clinic, Mark and his wife, Karen, And Mark is black and Karen is white. And I I sent them both to the same specialist to treat the same chronic condition. And Karen was started on treatment right away. But Mark was told for some reason he should wait six months before starting his treatment. And I, I take care of another patient, Brian, who's also black. And he told me that when he goes to other doctors, he exaggerates or plays up his pain because he has found that if he doesn't do that, white doctors don't take his pain seriously. And I'd like to think that my patients talk to me about these things because I don't dismiss them. I believe in their experience. And I know that research proves them right. We take care worse of black patients when they come in for heart attacks or pain. It's not that I think that doctors or nurses are bad people. I I don't believe that. But I do believe that we carry this implicit, sometimes unconscious bias into every encounter that we have, even as doctors. And especially if we're not examining this and thinking of it, white doctors will take worse care of black patients. But I didn't tell Bodhi any of this. I just said, I'm really sorry, Mr. Bowden, and I'm going to try to show you that we will provide your wife all the care that we would provide any other patient at this hospital. So that's what I tried to do. I told him 
Mr. Bowden, it's clear that Mrs. Bowden can't eat anymore. It's not safe. She'll just aspirate it into her lungs. And really the only way that she'll ever get nutrition again is if we put a feeding tube into her stomach. And he said, well, yeah, you, you have to do that. How, how is she supposed to get better and come home with me if she's not eating? You have to do this. So I arranged for it to be done. Her circulation got so poor that some of her fingers and several of her toes were literally rotting off of her body. And it was to the point where I I went to examine her one morning and I pulled the blanket over her foot and this shriveled black toe just fell off into my hand. And I told him, her circulation is very poor and this is probably a sign that she's nearing the end of her life. And really, the only thing that would stop infection from spreading is to amputate her feet. And he said, well, you can't let an infection happen. So I arranged for the amputations. And there came a point during her hospital stay where I had to discuss with Bodhi her resuscitation status or what we should do if her heart were to stop or she were to stop breathing. And I told him, one option is full resuscitation. And in this setting, if her heart were to stop or she were to stop breathing, we would do things like chest compressions and shock treatments and breathing tube and breathing machine and large IVs, lots of medication. These are invasive things, but it's all with the hopes that we would get her heart started again. Unfortunately, despite all of this, it almost never works. If someone's heart stops, we can almost never get it started again. And there's basically no chance that she would recover and be the Nancy that you knew before. I was almost scared to tell him about the other option because I was afraid that he would think I was suggesting we withhold care from her. But the other option was do not resuscitate. And in this setting, um, if her heart were to stop or she were to stop breathing or be close to that, instead of these invasive things, we would offer her comfort. We would give medication to make sure that she's not in pain or anxious or scared. And we would gather her family and bring them together and offer them food and coffee. And we would talk with them about her and her life. And the family in this kind of situation gets this peace and closure. And the patient gets this calm and dignified death. So I explained this to him in the briefest of terms because I knew what he was going to say. And he said, well, if her heart stops, you you have to try to save her. Two days later, I hear Bodhi screaming from her hospital room, and I'm just a couple doors away, and I run in, and I see that Mrs. Bowden is not breathing, and she doesn't have a pulse. She has died. But I signed this contract with Bodhi that if this were to happen, I would try to bring her back. So I started chest compressions. And with each of the compressions on her chest, I broke another one of her fragile ribs. And all you can hear in in the room was just crunch, 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 crunch. And dozens of doctors and nurses ran in, and I took Bodhi to the other side of the room. 
as the chest compressions started pushing up her tube feeds from her stomach until it was just this green bubbling vomit coming from her mouth and they suctioned it away so that we could shove a breathing tube down her throat and on the other side of the bed there were two doctors trying to start a large IV in her groin but they had missed the first time so there was just this deep red blood just oozing from her and saturating the sheets and the blankets around her So they ripped off her hospital gown so they could try the IV on the other side. And now she was just naked, just bouncing in her own vomit and blood. And I looked over at Bodhi, and he was horrified. His face was twisted, and his eyes were just locked on his wife in front of him. It wasn't until that moment that I realized what I had done. I never should have given Bodhi the option. I never should have let him say yes to a feeding tube and cutting off her feet when I knew this wasn't going to do anything to prolong her life or improve her life. I never should have agreed to try to resuscitate this woman when I knew there was no way she was going to survive it. But I did all of these things because I was trying to convince him that I wasn't a racist. And if I was working that hard to try to convince him that I wasn't a racist, then was I? I just, I worried because I had been so blind to this the whole time, up until this terrible moment. So what was I supposed to do to make sure that this never happened again? Thank you. This is Risk, this is Ruby Vell and the Sulfonics behind me now, and we just heard from Rose Grant. Before that, a little bit of a song called Girls Like Girls by Haley Kiyoko. And 
No one has time to go to the post office. You're busy. You don't have time to deal with the traffic and the parking and whatnot. That's why you need Stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail, not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. It's a no-brainer. It's no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com, like Risk and the Story Studio. We've been using it forever, and we love it. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Our final story on this week's episode uh, comes to us from Summer Gilmore. This is another intense story. You can find Summer on Instagram at S-U-M-E-R-G 7077. And here she is now, Summer Gilmore, with a story we call Missing. It is the summer of 2005, and I'm living in Iowa with my husband and our three kids. Now in Iowa, the summers can get really hot and humid, and we have a great big house without any central air. So on really hot nights, we would let our kids come and sleep in our room since we were the only room in the whole house that had a window air conditioner unit. And this was one of those nights. So we bring all the kids upstairs, we make a little bed on the floor, we put a movie on, and then we all just go to bed. And around midnight, I wake up to my husband nudging me awake. Summer, Summer, where's the baby? The baby's two. She's on the floor. And I roll over and I go back to sleep. And he's nudging me again more aggressively. Summer, where is the baby? She's on the floor. No, she's not. She's not on the floor. So I get up and I go over to the bed on the floor and I'm kind of moving the blankets around and I'm waking up my other two kids and she's not there. She's not on the floor. And the kids are waking up and we're looking in all of the usual places. I mean, she's two. Did she go back to her bed? Did she get something to drink? Did she go to the bathroom? And she is none of these places. So now we're starting to open bathroom cupboards and we're looking under the beds. And I start to walk down the stairs. And I get downstairs and the first thing that hits me is that my front door is wide open. And my 
dogs are sitting on my living room floor. And these are not the types of dogs that don't bark when someone comes in. And these are not the types of dogs that will just sit on my living room floor. So something isn't right. And my husband brings the kids downstairs and he gets them a snack and sits them on the couch and he's trying to keep them calm. And I go outside and I call her name a few times. And if you have kids and you've ever lost them in a park or in a mall, you know that moment when you don't see them right away. You're trying to fight that away. They're not missing. You're going to find them any second now, any second now. Should I, you know, are they really missing? And that panic just kind of cycles through your head and it's starting to creep in a little bit and I'm still pushing it away. We have these neighbors that I don't think like us and I don't really have any reason to believe they don't like us other than the fact that they won't ever wave at me from the driveway. They've never let my kids come over to play. And they happen to be having a party right now that we weren't invited to. But they're up, and so I go over there, and I'm really nervous because I have to go over to this house of people that I don't think like me and tell them that it is midnight and I can't find my two-year-old. And they're a little concerned, but they haven't seen anything and they haven't heard anything. And I walk back home and I tell my husband they haven't seen her. And I tell him that it's probably time to call 911. It's been about 15 minutes since he first woke me up to tell me that she's missing. And I was doing okay until the dispatcher asked me to describe what she's wearing. She's two. She has blonde hair, and she is wearing Tinkerbell pajamas. And I just fell apart. My husband somehow is remaining completely calm through all of this, and he's telling the kids that everything's going to be okay. I live in the type of town where a lot of people have CB radios, so I have people coming to my house now before the police are even there, and they have dogs, and they have flashlights. And I have to describe to you the distinction for me. Up until this point, I didn't know where my daughter was. But these people showing up at my house with their dogs and their flashlights are joining an investigation of a missing child that I didn't realize had begun. And a line has been crossed. People are asking me questions. Do you know anybody? Would she go anywhere? Did you hear anything? Did your dogs bark? And they're going into my house and they're sitting with my kids and they're asking my kids questions. And I'm not even sure that everybody is speaking English because everything is just spinning and it's happening really, really fast and I don't know what's going on. And now the police are coming. The police have much more specific questions. And I remember them asking me if we knew anybody that could have taken her. My husband and I look at each other because we did know somebody, somebody that we were close to, and everybody in our family had heard the rumors of what he was supposed to have done. And I can't tell you why we didn't say anything to the police right then, other than we weren't ready to go there because she was okay and we were going to find her and nobody had taken her. We are all in the front yard, and we have an above-ground pool. And of course, I had thought about the above-ground pool because I have a two-year-old and an above-ground pool, and she is missing. And the police are walking to our backyard, and my husband is following, and I'm behind him. 
and my feet just stop. I can't walk anymore. And I just start shouting his name, Shane, Shane, Shane. And he turns around and he says, what? I said, just don't tell me. And it felt like a thousand years before he got to the pool. And I waited. And he said, she's not in here. And then my legs quit working and I just collapsed. Because as much as I didn't want her to be in there, it meant that she was still missing. And now they're coming and telling me that it's time to put my dogs up because the canine unit is coming and they need to search my house. And this is very real, and this is happening right now, and all of these people are trying to help me find my two-year-old, and she's been missing now for about 45 minutes. The dogs and their handlers come, and they're asking me to find the last outfit that she wore, and I'm looking in the laundry room, and I don't understand, and my husband's shouting at me, aren't her clothes in the bathroom, and I don't understand what anybody wants from me, and I don't know what they're doing, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and my husband finds the clothes, and they smell them, and they're searching the house and they leave. And I don't know where I'm supposed to go. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to look for her. My feet don't work. And so I go back outside. And it's been over an hour now. And my two-year-old in her Tinkerbell pajamas is missing in the middle of the night. I am starting to ask myself some really tough questions. Why didn't my dogs bark? Was it someone that they knew? Did she call for me? Is she okay? Would I innately know if she was still alive? And I don't really know when it happened, but at some point I must have been on the ground and pulled myself into a fetal position. I'm just rocking and I'm calling her name and I'm wailing her name and I am just lost. The daughter of our neighbor's 13-year-old girl, the neighbors who I don't think like me. She has her arm around me, and she doesn't know what to say. She doesn't know what to do because she's 13, and I'm pretty hysterical. And we're just rocking together in my front yard while I scream my baby's name. About an hour and a half after she's been missing, a car comes up, and I am told that this is the chief of police. And I don't know why he's there, I want to know what he knows, why he's now come to my house an hour and a half after my daughter has gone missing. And I'm trying not to listen too much because he might be saying something that I don't want to hear. And he goes right into my house. And before I know it, my husband is calling for me upstairs. They found her, they found her. And I am up and I'm running through the house and I go up the stairs because he called from our room. And standing there is the chief of police holding my daughter, wrapped in a blanket. And my first thought is that she wasn't alive. And I pull her from him, and I'm pulling the blanket from her face, and she is hot, and she is sweaty, but she is very much alive. And tears are pouring down my face, because I don't know where she was, I don't know who found her, I don't know how she got here. And my husband is just laughing, And the chief of police is just laughing, and I don't understand any of this. And they tell me that two weeks earlier, the chief of police and his wife woke up to find their four-year-old missing. 
he had wrapped himself in a blanket and gotten wedged between the mattress and the footboard of their bed. And so when he heard about my little girl, he came right to the house, and that's the first place that he looked. (laughs) So now, all of my fear has immediately turned to embarrassment. (laughs) I have half of my town out looking for a child who never left her parents' bed. My husband goes outside and he lets everyone know that she's okay. We will have answers tomorrow. And we would like some privacy tonight. So in the morning, I tell my kids that we've got some cookies to bake. And my 11-year-old, why? Why are we making cookies? They didn't do anything. Nobody found her. She never left. You know... Not one person hesitated, and people that we didn't know and people that we don't think like us came over, and everybody was there, and everybody helped. So we baked cookies, and we went door-to-door on our block. There was no way for me to know all of the people that were there that night, and we walked door-to-door on our street, and I both thanked and apologized, (laughs) everyone that came out that night. And the craziest thing was, I honestly believed that they were going to be angry at me. Angry for pulling them out of their homes in the middle of the night, for scaring them, for taking up their time. And you know what? Not one person was mad. I still don't think the neighbors liked us, though. is all for this week's episode folks this is hollow coves behind me now and we just heard from summer gilmore you can always find information about where risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour and anyone who wants to pitch us can pitch us by going to risk-show.com slash submissions. And everything you need to know about pitching us is right there on that page. If you're interested in learning even more about storytelling, check out our school at thestorystudio.org. Folks, 
Today's the day. Take a risk. And we all sit around the fire. We feel a little warm without. And we all sit around the fire. We feel so much better now. And we all sit around the fire. We feel a little warm without. And we all sit around. Yeah, you're number one? Yes. Uh, are you residential specialist? Yes. And you do free estimates before repairs are made? Yes. Uh, do you have frost-free experts? Are you reading the ad? Yeah, I'm just checking if this ad is correct here. Yes, it is. Oh. Um, are you dependable, prompt, and efficient? I'm just checking if the ad's correct. The, the ad is complete and correct. Oh. Do you spell the word uh, one in your name, number one? O-N-E? Yes. Yeah. And you have senior citizens discounts? Yes. And you do uh, Frigidaires, cold spots, etc.? Yes. Yeah. And for my convenience, should I call one of your service offices nearest me? No, I'm just checking if the ad's correct. Uh, okay, I've already told you the ad's oh. correct. Uh, do you have a number one serviceman in all areas 24 hours a day? Ma'am, do you want service? No, damn it, I want to know if the ad's correct. That's fine, call somebody else. Oh, okay.